So how is the long sheltering in place thing going for you? Anybody killed anyone else yet? No, that's good. Thought about it? That's not so good. Have you got kids, little kids? Then God bless you, especially during this challenging time, because I'm sure everything has been quiet and calm around your house, right? I'm coming to you today through the wonders of technology. My words broadcast right in your home, and I got to wondering what it might look like if somehow we were able to attach a sort of return signal, a mirror cam of sorts that would show me what's actually going on with you and your family right now. Not just in this moment, but throughout your week. What would I see? Well, let me take a simple poll right here. This is especially for those of you that have got kids, especially little kids. And you can answer by selecting whichever picture best captures your kid's sheltered life. Picture A or picture B. That's what I thought. I loved uh, something that a young single mom I know posted online this week. It carried this honest caption. Letting the kids play hooky from school today is the gift that keeps on giving. It means I get to eat my off-brand Pop-Tart and drink my coffee in peace. Anybody listening out there today that can identify? But if only the stress we were experiencing didn't just impact our kids, but we adults have had our collective moments too, right? Little tension here and there, moments that have been less than calm. Maybe it was your spouse that you let sleep in one morning this week so that you could have that peaceful breakfast. The truth is, much of life is filled with interpersonal struggles, moments when we may feel like there's only a very slim distance between war and peace, between calm and chaos. Back in the spring of 1992, after six days of bloody rioting in Los Angeles, left at least 55 people dead, over 2,000 injured, and property damage of some $1 billion. Rodney King, whose vicious beating became the prompt for it all, made this passionate plea. People, I just want to say, can we all get along? Can we all get along? And even his tombstone continues to express that desperate longing. But the truth is, for lots of reasons, we often don't get along. We, we clash, we struggle, we lash out against each other, we fight wars in our homes and on battlefields all around the globe. And unfortunately, we often even clash with each other inside our churches, the one place in this world where peace should reign. Well, after a two-week break to celebrate some of the stories of Easter, today we're returning to our study of James, a study that we've called a series. We've called Blue Jeans Theology. It's all about how faith practically gets lived out in everyday life. And this morning, we consider the first 10 verses of James chapter 4, which begin with this question. What is it that's causing the quarrels and fights among you? You might say, well, that's been the question of the ages. Why did Cain take out Abel? What was it between Jacob and Esau and their lifelong feud? What went wrong with King Saul and soon to be King David? The list of characters could be, be long. Why, why do people move from being allies to becoming enemies? They leap from brothers to vicious adversaries. Or to get it a lot more personal, 
Think about somebody who used to be an intimate part of your life, but has now become one of your chief irritants, perhaps even enemies. It's an important question James asked at the opening of our text today, isn't it? What causes quarrels and fights among us? Well, a lot of us would be quick to answer, well, it's all those crazy people we're forced to live with, nagging neighbors and bossy bosses and stubborn spouses and cranky co-workers, and the list goes on and on and on. But at the heart, what we're saying is that life would not be so conflict-filled if we just didn't have to deal with all the cast of characters that live around us. It's all their fault, all their problem. Or we could always just blame it on the devil, you know, that feisty character who goes around punching everybody's sensitive buttons. And if it weren't just for his diabolical influence in the world, we, we'd all get along, right? You might remember there were even some that James said blamed God for all their troubles. But in our text today, James begins detailing some of what we'll call the causes for fighting and quarrels in a very uncomfortable way. Verse 1, chapter 4. What causes the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. The, the primary cause, James says, isn't from anything outside of us, but, but, but because of something inside us. James invites those that he's writing to begin with some honest self-examination. A few weeks back when we talked about temptations, you'll remember that James cautioned against placing blame on, blame on external sources. He said, as well as he does here in chapter 4, that temptation is something that finds its genesis within us. He put it this way in one fourteen. Temptation, he says, comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Or the message captures the words in an even more in-your-face fashion. The temptation to give in to evil comes from us and only us. We have no one to blame but the leering, seducing flare-up of our own lust. Lust gets pregnant and has a baby. Sin. Sin grows up to adulthood and becomes a real killer. The actual word that James uses in chapter 4, verse 1 in the Greek language is the one from which we get our English word hedonism. That's the kind of desire he's talking about, not anything that creates a very positive image. It's the eat, drink, and be merry philosophy that's all about what I want, what I enjoy, and what makes me happy. It's my personal desires, my evil passions, my self-indulgent pleasures, my sinful appetites. There are many people in life that are just on an eternal quest for something to make them happy. And quite often, it's essential happy that they have most in mind. Jimmy Buffett, that guy from Margaritaville who comes to do a Parrothead concert in Cincinnati about every summer, he wrote a book a few years ago as he reached his half-century mark in life. It's entitled, A Pirate Looks at Fifty. 
and he opens the book by remembering what it was like as a child to come back to school after summer vacation. He, he grew up in sunny South Carolina where he loved shorts and t-shirts and bare feet. I guess nothing's changed. But his teachers would always, as the new term began, make the students write about what they did over their summer vacation, usually in so many words or less. So Buffett hit on the idea of trying to sum up his 50 years of life, at least from adolescence on, in a similar format in 400, 400 words or less to serve as the introduction to his book. Now, I'm not going to read you all 400 words. I've edited it down to a few less, and I'll start somewhere a little closer to the middle of his story. But you'll get the gist of his life well enough. He says, I learned to play the guitar, lived on the beach, started a band, broke up my band, and went out on the road. I signed a record deal, got married, moved to Nashville, had my guitars stolen, bought a Mercedes, put out my first album, went broke, wrecked the Mercedes, got divorced, moved to Key West. I sang and worked on a fishing boat, went totally crazy, did a lot of dope, met the right girl, made another record, had a hit, bought a boat, and sailed away to the Caribbean. I started another band, worked the road, had my second and last hit, bought a house in Aspen, started spending summers in New England, got married, broke my leg three times in one year, had a baby girl, made more records, bought a bigger boat, and sailed away to St. Bart's. I got separated from the right girl, sold the boat, sold the house in Aspen, moved back to Key West, worked the road, and made more records. I rented an apartment in Paris, went to Brazil for Carnival, learned to fly, went to therapy, quit doing dope, bought my first seaplane, flew all over the Caribbean, almost got a second divorce, moved to Malibu for more therapy, and got back with the right girl. I worked the road, moved back to Nashville, bought a summer home in Long Island, had another baby girl, found the perfect seaplane, moved back to Florida, built a home in Long Island, crashed the perfect seaplane in Nantucket, lived through it, tried to slow down a little, woke up one morning, and I was looking at 50, trying to figure out what comes next. You want to know any more, you'll have to read the book, or, or not. But a lot of life is about trying to figure out what's next, and I guess what one more thing will satisfy make us happy, keep us going, at least until we're 50. If you had to write your life story in 400 words or less, what sort of searching and wanting and grasping and pleasure would you have to include in your story? William Willimon says, Our culture is but a, a supermarket of desires. William Barclay describes it this way, as a pleasure-dominated life. Life's all about me, my wants, my needs, what satisfies me. The problem, we often keep looking for what we want with desires still unmet, pleasures unfulfilled. Some still keep looking for that better seaplane or that better wife or just a better life. While we litter the way with all the casualties that we've created all along the way. But here's the problem with what happens when it's all about me and my desires or my passions. That means that everyone else always takes second seat. You are only an end to my means. The engine that drives conflict lives deep inside me. The real seductive voice comes from within me. I suppose you could boil it all down to this stark truth. 
the essence of all sin and the damage that it brings is selfishness. It's a life that's driven by what I want, when I want it, without any regard at all for the relational cost. You do whatever you need to do to get what you want, James says. You scheme, and if need be, you even kill. Now, some read these words and they say, surely James doesn't mean to suggest that we would kill each other for something we selfishly desire. After all, he's writing this letter to Christians, not to pagans. But just in the past chapter, James wrote about some believers being bitterly jealous, motivated by selfish ambition, covering up truth with boasting and lying. Maybe murder's not too far offline if the gestational period is long enough. Frustrated desire can lead to deadly consequences. And to make matters even darker, if you have what I want in your hand, I will be jealous of your good fortune, fortune, and if I can't get it for my own, I'll wage war with you until I get it. It's not just about what I want, but about what you have that I want. Your wife, your job, your house, your health, your success, your whatever you have that's become the intense object of my desire. When my daughter was young, I once bought her a record made by an artist called Raffi. I, I liked his positive music and I bought the record because I especially liked one of the songs that included these words. It's mine, but you can have some. It's mine, but you can share it. <laughs> it's a cute song. But hard childhood practice, right? It's mine, and if you try to pry it out of my hands, I'll give you something, but it won't be something you'd really like me to share. And if it's something that's within your firm grasp, let the war for possession begin. The story's told that one day Abraham Lincoln was walking down the, the street with his two boys at his side, and they were, they were fighting real loud about something when a man asked Lincoln what the problem was. And Lincoln said, just what's the problem with the whole world? I've got three walnuts, and each boy wants two. We all want what we want and what anyone else, else has, too. From the time a two-year-old learns the dangerous word, mine, it's often downhill in the selfish drive department. And as we grow older, those passions get even more dangerous, as well as the means that we possess to take what we want from others. How many wars have been fought over just some bigger piece of land? How, how many relationships ruined over just achieving one higher rung on the ladder? Their rung. How many churches sacrifice their witness because somebody insists on their selfish way, no matter the cost? A 17th century Jewish philosopher, Benedict Spinoza, once made this telling observation. I've often wondered, he said, that persons who make boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display towards daily towards one another such bitter hatred that, they, that this, rather than the virtues that they possess, is the readiest criteria of their faith. Selfish desire is deadly desire. At its heart, this spirit also evidences a clear disregard for God and an overblown confidence in self. James continues with an interesting turn in verse 2. He says, 
yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. When it's all about me, there's little thought about God. Some might call it practical atheism. We, we say we believe, but we don't give God a first thought when we're looking for any of our provisions in life. We will just take care of those things all on our own. We have the means. We have the drive. We know what we want. And if we ever do finally think of God, and that's usually only after we haven't been successful getting what we want, we may finally come and ask, but our motives are selfish, all wrongly motivated, and God clearly sees into our hearts and he refuses to grant what he knows we don't need. Prayer is not about saying to God, Lord, please do for me what I want. It's more about Lord, do what you want with me. Former baseball star Bobby Richardson once penned this very right-hearted prayer. Dear God, thy will be done. Nothing less, nothing more, nothing else. Amen. You see, there's always this interesting tension between our wants and our needs. And God has this amazing ability to be able to distinguish our true motivations. When I was a kid, my dad's comeback, when I was coming asking for one more must-have request of him was often these words. And you probably want a hole in your head too. It was his disarming way to try and get my attention and to focus on the fact that I wanted more than I needed. Life's not all about who will give me pleasure, and no one knows my true needs any more fully than God, my Father. He reads through all my selfish petitions, and he doesn't give me what he knows will do me more harm than good. If you only ask God for what you think you need, don't be surprised if he disappoints you. James goes on to warn us that it is a dangerous thing to have a divided heart. In verse 4, he makes this point in blunt fashion. You adulterers, he says. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within you should be faithful to him. I think James probably got their attention. Your love affair with the world, he's saying, is not something that God will countenance. Now, the word that, that James uses in verse 4 is actually feminine form. He's literally saying, you adulteresses. In the Old Testament, the relationship between God and Israel was often characterized as a marriage. In Isaiah 54, 5, the prophet says, for your maker is your husband. But it was a marriage whose covenant pro promise was violated again and again in Jeremiah three twenty. Another prophet put it this way, But you have been unfaithful to me, you people of Israel. You have been like a faithless wife who leaves her husband. The second of the Ten Commandments is a, a prohibition against idolatry, that is, worshiping something or someone that's truly not God. And it comes with this clear warning, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. A little later in verse 8 of our James passage, he warns about loyalty being divided. Literally, it means double-minded or double-souled. 
And in keeping with the adultery analogy, it would, it would mean that we somehow are professing love to two different gods, the God of self or the world and the one true God. Now, we're not hard-pressed to get the clear meaning of this analogy. Men, if, if your wife came home one day and said, there's another man in my life, but I'll always think about you as my number one, and I'd like to love you both, is that okay? What would you say? Marriage is not some half-hearted, divided relationship. We either love all of God or none of God. Our, our allegiance is to the world or it's to God. We can't be married to both at the same time. That destructive tension not only destroys our relationship with God, but it is the root cause that James is saying for all of our quarreling and fighting in this world. An affair is a dangerous, slippery thing. If you get up one morning and say, I think I'll commit adultery today. It's, it's a seed that's planted that with time turns into sin, the heart that grows cold, the head that gets turned, the relationship that slowly grows long before the act is committed. And it all finds fertile soil in a divided heart. God longs for us to be fully faithful to him. Well, there's more we could say, but if we stop right here with this sad litany of all the causes for our conflict and quarreling, we never find our way to the cure so let me finish up with you by turning to what James says in verse 6. God gives grace generously, he says. As the, as the scriptures say, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's from Proverbs 3.24. There's an amazing story about a prophet in the Old Testament whose name was Hosea. God had him marry of all things, a prostitute, or at least someone who used to be, though she still seems to have tortured their marriage through the continued practice. They even had children together in the middle of it all. And the purpose of this God-directed union, strange as it may seem, was to let Israel know that God still loved them and longed to be their God. There was even a point, believe it or not, in Hosea's marriage when his prostitute wife evidently left him, but God finally came to Hosea and said, and this is in chapter 3, verse 1 of Hosea, Go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. <laughs> right. But Hosea amazingly does just that. It says, so he bought her back. He, he bought her back. He paid to get her back in his life. Then he said to her, you must live in my house for many days and stop your prostitution. Now, the buying back is, is grace. James wants his readers to know that they are responsible for the mess that they're in, but that God still longs to love them. Hosea didn't invite his erring wife back in a way that communicated that she could just do whatever she wanted without consequence. But here's the key thing. He led with grace. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He leads with grace. The message of the gospel always upends what the world embraces. The way to up is down. The way to be great is to be humble. It's not about climbing, but, but kneeling. So many in life are at odds with each other because they've concluded that the good life is about gaining being strong, being first, about possessing, when it's actually more about giving, about weakness, about even losing before you gain. Dick Hollingsworth tells about 
a dear friend and mentor, John Claypool. He was a remarkable preacher and writer. He used to say that he grew up feeling a profound sense of nobodiness. He said that his parents meant to encourage and inspire him, but the phrase that he heard over and over as he was a young child was, if you're ever going to amount to anything, you're going to have to make something of yourself. And he fell into and succeeded in the game of competition, trying to satisfy those crazy cravings. He became a teacher's pet, and then there was another war to win. He, he became a school patrol member, and then there was another war to win. Next, it was athletics, and then people who became objects. They either contributed to his success or they hampered it. There is something out there that I've still not acquired that will make this feel all better. He said he lived that way until he was about 35. And what happened at 35 that changed things for him was that he fell into a peer group of area ministers. He was a minister. But these guys came together and they, they grew to risk being vulnerable with each other. And one day he let down his mask and he told the group how desperately he'd been living, how he, how he still continued to strive for worth. And he confessed how wrung out he'd always been by competing, always trying to prove himself. And a word of grace came to him from the man in the group with whom he felt the least affinity. The man said, what you need is to feel the truth of the gospel down in your guts. When Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he said that you are the light of the world. He just declared, you are. It's your birthright. There's nothing to achieve. By birthright, we are persons of great worth. Our worth is not something out there to be acquired, but something in here to be claimed. Claypool said it was as if he saw clearly for, first, for the first time. From that life-changing moment, he said his agenda shifted from attainment to awareness. He realized that for him to live fully, he was going to have to win the war of the cravings. He couldn't attain enough to feel worthy or significant. It was a silly, elusive game. Worth doesn't come from attaining what you do not have, but instead it comes from the happy awareness of what you already possess because of God. Life's not about snatching and grabbing, about coveting and wanting. It's about giving up our, our inclination to seize what we think greatness is about accepting what real worth is, a gift that comes our way through divine grace. If the essence of sin is selfishness, the path to grace is humility. In the closing verses, James offers a clear portrait of repentance, a way back to God, a way out of the broken mess he's just described in the pre preceding verses. We don't have to be at odds with each other, all quarreling and fighting all the time, but it's going to require that we first get right with God. Too often we start with a symptom before we address the core issue. We're not right with each other because we're not right with God. And so in quick fashion, James provides a series of clear imperatives. Verse 7, so humble yourselves before God, he says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you've done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before God, and he will lift you up in honor. You could 
translate the first imperative, humble yourself in verse 7, is submit. It, it, it's a word that comes out of the mil, military context that carries a sense of to stand under someone, under someone else's authority, to recognize your place. I like how Warren Wearsby's put it. He says, when a buck private acts like a general, there's always going to be trouble. There's a spiritual hierarchy in place, and I am not God. We don't like the word submit, do we? Whether it's to submit to God or anyone else in life, we chaff at standing under anyone. We don't like submission. We all prefer to be generals, but look what all those bloody wars have driven us to when we've claimed that title. James says that it all begins with assuming our rightful place. Ironically, it's, it's from the lower place that we find our greater value. It's through humility that we gain our greatest divine blessings. God opposes the proud, but he gives generously to the humble. In fact, in verse 10, James says, Humble yourself, and God will lift you up in honor. Another imperative, resist. Not each other, but the devil, James says. Satan's the real enemy. <clears throat> More combat in, uh, imagery, but in the context in which we understand that life is not about some bitter contest with each other, but in a firm resistance against Satan. If you want to fight, don't do it with your brother or sister. Take Satan on. We don't assume a defensive posture, but we go on the offense. We, we fight, but we fight him. And with these first three imperatives James offers, there is a beautiful corresponding blessing. We've already mentioned the one that goes with the first, the humble will be lifted up. But now comes the second, resist the devil, he says, and he'll flee from you. Our humble acknowledgement of God forces the devil to flee because the battle's already been fought and won. John Ortberg tells this personal story. He says many years ago he was walking on in Newport Beach. It's a beach in Southern California with two of his friends. Two were on staff with him at a church and one was an elder in the same church. And they, they walked past this bar where a fight had been going on inside and the fight had spilled out onto the street, just like an old Western. And several guys were beating up on another guy and he was bleeding from the forehead and they, they knew they had to do something about it. So they went over to break up the fight. Ortberg says that he doesn't really think that they were very intimidating. All they did was say, hey, you guys cut that out. And it didn't do much good. But then all of a sudden, those fellows looked at them with fear in their eyes. He says, the guys who had been beating up on that one guy stopped and started to slink away. And I didn't know why until we turned around and looked behind us. Out of that bar had come the biggest man I think I've ever seen. He was something like Six feet, seven inches, maybe 300 pounds, maybe 2% body fat. Just huge. We called him Bubba. He says not to his face, but afterwards when we talked about him. <clears throat> Bubba didn't say a word. He just stood there and flexed. You could tell that he was hoping they would try and have a go at him. All of a sudden, Ortberg says, my attitude was transformed. And I said to those guys, you better not let us catch you coming around here again. I was a different person, he says, because I had this great big bubba behind me. I was ready to confront with resolve and firmness, whatever. I was released from my anxiety and fear. I was feared, filled with boldness and confidence. I was ready to help somebody that needed help, and I was, I was ready to serve where serving was required. Why? Because I had big bubba back behind me. I was convinced I wasn't alone. I was safe. If I were convinced that bubba was with me 24 hours a day, 
I would have a fundamentally different approach to my life, he said. If I knew Bubba was behind me all day long, you wouldn't want to mess with me. And then he asks, how big is your God? The sight of God will always make Satan flee. Come close to God, James continues. Do you ever wonder how God will react or respond to you after, after the ways that you've discounted him? Try him, James says. If you come close to God, God will come close to you. You ever had a fight with somebody important in your life? And you wondered even if you tried to reconcile whether they'd come back to you? That was never a question with God. If God can love an adulterous world enough to send his very own son as a sacrifice for us, there is always hope for any soul who draws near to God. Another imperative, wash your hands. The words hearken to the priests of the ancient Israel who, who had to prepare themselves before they entered the holy place for spiritual service. There was a ritual of purification that didn't so much make them pure as it provided a reminder, a clear reminder of God's holiness that he should never be approached in any kind of casual fashion. We're all sinners. He is our holy God. And we need always to wash our hands and purify our hearts. Psalm 24 provides a vivid imagery of this right approach to God. In verse 3, it begins, Who may climb to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy presence? Only those whose hands and hearts are pure, who do not worship idols and never tell lies. They will receive the Lord's blessing and have a right relationship with God, their Savior. Well, you might say, well, who can ever get their hands or heart clean enough to stand before a holy God? I love the words of the church father, Augustine, who once wrote, God gives what he demands. In the upper room on the, on the night before Jesus died, he washed his disciples' feet and he brought a, it brought a rebuke from Peter who didn't want to allow Jesus to perform what he thought was so humiliating a task. And Jesus responded, unless I wash you, you don't belong to me. I think Jesus was talking about far more than just washing dirty feet. I think he had in mind sin-soiled hands and, and hearts. Well, during all this sheltering in place time, have you, have you gotten a little bit anxious about how well you're managing your hand washing? We watch videos and we read guidelines about how to do it and what's wrong to sing and how to get in between the right fingers just to do it in a right and effective way. Jesus washes our hands. He, he washes our hearts. He washes our feet. And he assures our safe standing before God through the complete sacrifice he made for our sins. He does it for us. James says, let there be tears and sorrow and deep grief, sadness instead of laughter, gloom instead of joy. We dare not make repentance a casual or a flippant thing. Our sin is deep and real, and condemnation is most certainly deserved. We must take sin seriously, or we'll never appreciate a Savior most fully. The famous Beatitudes of Jesus open with these words, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. If selfishness is the essence of sin, 
humility is the true path toward God. What's causing the quarrels and fights among you, James asked. It's all a matter of the attitude of our hearts. I'd hope that when the world looks at the church, it can't help but notice that we are different, or at least that we should be. That our lives are not all about grasping, but giving. Not about climbing, but kneeling. Not about greatness, but about humility. I like the way the message captures the last four verses of our text. Let me close by letting their fresh voice complete what we just had to say. James says, so let God work his will in you. Yell aloud no to the devil and watch him scamper. Say a quiet yes to God and he'll be there in no time. Quit dabbling in sin. Purify your inner life. Quit playing the field. Hit bottom and cry your eyes out. The fun and games are over. Get serious, really serious. Get down on your knees before the master. It's the only way you'll get on your feet. Let's pray. God, we come today and... Uh, and admit to you that our lives are far too full of fights and quarrels and tensions. And we have blamed it on everything but ourselves. And I pray that these words from James have spoken to the depths of our heart. I pray that you will help us to understand what the causes are for this mess that we have in too much of life. And I'm grateful for the way that you have pointed us towards how we can find cure, how we, how we can find wholeness in life. And I pray that as we carry these words and we, we, we reflect on these thoughts during this week, that they will continue to speak to us and make us the kind of pure-handed and pure-hearted people that you would have us to be in this often challenging world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to share in communion, and as as we uh, as we prepare for that time to share the Lord's Supper, I want to remind you earlier about that change, that exchange between uh, Jesus and Peter around the foot washing time. Peter was sometimes slow to get a point, but when he understood, he firmly embraced it, and so it was this time too. And when Jesus said that without allowing him to wash his feet, he would not be a part of what Jesus was doing. Peter hurriedly went on to say, then not only my feet, then wash my hands, wash my head, wash all of me. Communion, Paul tells us, is a good time for self-examination. Perhaps it would do us all good during this time to ask, how spiritually clean have we allowed Jesus to help us be as we gather around our collective tables? Let's pray. Lord, wash our hands, purify our hearts. Help us to see ourselves in a way that you would want us to be as we gather around your table. Through Christ we pray. Amen.